our text this morning. As we hear from the living God in his word is Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20. For those of you joining us just now, or maybe you weren't here a couple weeks ago, we began our study of this passage two weeks ago, and then last week was World Mission Sunday, and we weren't in Hebrews, meaning that now you've had time to forget everything. And this morning, we return to this text, and we'll try to continue to follow the pastor as he brings us back into the heartbeat of this sermon. Jesus Christ is our High Priest. Now, the pastor is going to have a lot to say about Christ as High Priest in the weeks to come. We've known that's been coming since chapter 5, verse 11, haven't we? About this we have much to say, the pastor told his hearers there. Because this is central. Because this is the key to their endurance in faith. The key to our endurance in faith. That fact was the initial point that the pastor made, if you recall, at the beginning of this large central section that we're now in, in Hebrews. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 14, if you have the Bible in front of you, look back there with me. I know we've read this verse a few times already, but just listen to it once more. The pastor says in chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It is somehow because Jesus is our high priest that the pastor can confidently turn and urge his hearers and urge us to do this, to hold fast their confession, to have, as he puts it in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, right before our text this morning, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but instead be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So that the question I think that the pastor is addressing here in our passage, verses 13 to 20 of chapter 6, is a foundational one. What is it about Jesus being our high priest that enables us to do this? To have faith and patience. To keep on loving God and one another by serving the saints, as he said they were doing in verse 10. Or, in other words, what's the big deal? I mean, if as your pastor I were to say to you, as I'm saying right now, brothers and sisters, you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. What, what's, what point am I trying to make? What does that mean? for you, for us. This is the driving question of Hebrews, for me at least at this point, because the pastor is staking everything on this. The fact that Jesus is our high priest is the key to our enduring faith. Somehow, if we grasp what it means, no wonder the pastor hit the brakes 
in chapter 5, verse 11. No wonder he shamed them and warned them and comforted them to bring them back to this point. No wonder it won't be until chapter 10, verse 25, that we come to the end of this large section of Hebrews focusing on Christ as high priest. A long way to go. The pastor wants to ensure his hearers are ready to take this in. They cannot be dull of hearing on this point. Neither can we. We must grasp what it means that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And so we start. And the starting point in chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, where we are this morning, the first and the most foundational thing that the pastor says regarding Jesus as our high priest is that it means that God is faithful. <laughs> that God can be trusted, that God's promises are completely reliable. Now, I think that may not be what you and I would think of first when we considered Jesus being our high priest. But it is, I think, the foundational point that the pastor makes in our passage even though it's not all that this passage has to say. There's, there will be lots and lots to come about what the high priesthood of Jesus means, what it means for us, for our lives. We get some of that even at the end of our passage today. But even though it may not be the strongest or the most memorable image that comes out of this text for you in a passage that includes famous words about Jesus being our anchor and our forerunner behind the curtain. I mean, these are the things that grab us. But I think that the foundational thing the pastor puts in place is that he would have us understand as he will move us into the core of this section of Hebrews is he would have us understand that what Jesus, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, says to us is what God has promised, God will surely bring about. You can bank your whole life on it. In fact, that's what living by faith will entail. Now, to get back into this, last week I began by suggesting that in verses 13 to 20, the pastor is referring to one promise, but two different oaths that are related to that promise. In verses 13 to 16, which is as far as we got last time two weeks ago, we began to consider the promise a bit, even as we also looked rather extensively at the first oath in this text. And we saw this is not terribly straightforward or evident in the English translation in verses 13 and 14, but we said the promise and the oath are not the same thing. They're both there. For, the pastor says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. But to make a little more clear that they're separate, we suggested you could translate the beginning of that verse as, God, having made, formerly in the past, a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, swore by himself at a later time. At a very specific later time, in fact, because as we saw, the oath that's quoted there in verse 14 is taken directly from Genesis chapter 22. Okay, so we reviewed Genesis chapter 22. 
And we found that that was where the Lord commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the child who was the embodiment of everything God had promised him earlier in his life. That was the context for the oath that we read here. Furthermore, we saw that the oath, though related to the promise, served its own purpose. Verse 16 talked about that. For, the pastor says, people swear by something greater than themselves, which obviously God can't do, which is why it says he swore by himself in verse 13. But the main point is, people swear, and in all their disputes, what's that for? The oath is final or conclusive for confirmation. And there's legal terminology being employed there, but the upshot is that if among people oaths are considered final for confirmation, well then how much more so when God makes an oath, you see? The point of an oath is to provide confirmation of something. That's important to see. And so then finally, we work our way back into verse 15 from last time where we see the pastor spells out what all this meant. Now, you recall that in Genesis 22, Abraham had been about to carry out the command the Lord gave him to sacrifice his son when something happened. The angel of the Lord stopped him, and Abraham's attention was turned to the ram caught by its horns, and Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of his son, and he called the name of the place in Genesis 22, the Lord will provide. That was Abraham's takeaway, because, of course, the Lord had provided. Abraham had received what we called two weeks ago the concrete confirmation that all the Lord had promised would come to pass. He received his son, figuratively speaking, back from the dead, Hebrews later says. And it was then... Having returned Isaac from the altar, having provided the ram, having acted decisively to show Abraham concretely his own unwavering commitment to keep his promises, it was then that the Lord swears the oath that the pastor quotes in verse 14, which, as we said last time, could be translated, if I will not surely bless you and surely multiply you. So, now we'll read verse 15 finally, and hopefully again it makes sense. The pastor says, verse 15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Not meaning that God's promises to Abraham had all been fully realized in that moment. They hadn't. Hebrews 11, verse 13, says that Abraham and the faithful ones who came after him all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But the point that we ended with last time was that so significant was the oath, so significant was the Lord's verbal affirmation as accompanied by his tangible action that the pastor can say in verse 15, thus Abraham obtained the promise. All that the Lord promised him will surely come to pass. Abraham knows it. The Lord will provide, he says. And in fact, that was then meant to be a message for those beyond Abraham too. So that in Genesis 22, verse 14, we read, As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That was the promise. Some, some about the promise and the first oath 
And just to make sure the point's clear as we transition to the rest of the passage, last week I quoted from a study of Hebrews by a scholar who's also a Canadian pastor, he's a pastor in Ottawa actually, named Jonathan Griffiths. And Griffiths wrote a book called Hebrews and Divine Speech. And at one point in that book, he says this, quote, in, in a chapter studying the, these, these texts, the distinction between promise and oath lies in the fact that whereas a promise is a purely verbal affirmation of intention, an oath is a verbal affirmation with an attendant tangible guarantee and fulfillment. In other words, there's an action that comes alongside the verbal component of the oath to guarantee, to fulfill tangibly. This is the whole ballgame now as we go on to consider the significance of what the pastor says next in our text. So let's turn to verse 17. Verse 17 will be the main focus of the rest of this sermon, though we'll do a little with the rest of this passage. As I read it, there's a significant shift as you move from verses 13 to 16 to verses 17 to 20 in this chapter. We're moving now to the second oath of this text. And I think the second oath, part of the reason I think it's a second oath, is that it has a different audience, if you will. Whereas the pastor in verses 13 to 16 had been speaking of God's oath to Abraham, in verses 17 to 20, the pastor now writes concerning an oath God made for us, brothers and sisters. Those whom the pastor refers to here as the heirs of the promise. As we'll see now, it's not an oath that's spoken to us in the way the first oath was spoken to Abraham. But verse 17 does make clear the second oath was made for us. So let's read the verse. So, or I think you could say, accordingly, in a similar way to what you just read about in verses 13 to 16, when God desired to show more convincingly now right, to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. As he had done for Abraham and, and his descendants back in Genesis, in the early days, right? I, I think this is another oath. Not that we can't draw any encouragement from the oath given to Abraham too, but that there's another one in view here. Now again, just in this verse, we have two things, don't we? We have the promise, God desired to show to the heirs of the promise. And we have an oath. He guaranteed it with an oath. And I just point that out because I think that's the key again now to understanding what the pastor means when in verse 18 he starts to talk about two unchangeable things. You see it there, having concluded what he says about God's oath that guarantees the promise in verse 17, pastor moves on to the purpose of it all in verse 18, where he says it was so that by two unchangeable things, and I think those two unchangeable things are the promise and the oath. And specifically now, since 
the context has shifted, I think it's this second oath that we'll talk about in a minute. By those two things, for us who are heirs of the promise, those two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. I mean, there's the foundational point I'm trying to get across, right? That God, who by definition cannot lie, makes a promise and then goes on to swear an oath that reinforces or confirms concretely that promise. All of that is so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement, the pastor says, to hold fast to the hope set before us. God's purpose in certifying his promise with an oath is the encouragement of you and me, his people, in perseverance. I mean, that's the whole thing. And having read just to the end of the passage already, you know that all this somehow has to do with the fact that Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Which is another reason why I think there's a different oath in view. That's where we are when we come to the end of verse 20. And it's tempting at this point to just go right to the end of verse 20 and talk about that. But as I was working on this sermon quite a lot yesterday, I couldn't help but feel that maybe the thing I need to spend some more time on actually this morning, since we're going to talk a lot about Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the thing I should take a little time on right now to make sure we're clear on is this fact that the promise hasn't changed. I've already said, I think there's only one promise in view in this whole passage. And I admit it's not the focus of the pastor here now to spell out the nature of that promise exactly, but I think that's because he just assumes you get it. You get it. I want to make sure we actually do get it, or nothing that we're going to say about Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek is really going to sink in. Look again at verse 17. According to verse 17, God desired to show more convincingly than he had even done for Abraham more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. What is that? <laughs> what is the unchangeable character of his purpose? Or if I may offer my own translation of that, at the end of the verse there, it's not quite as smooth, uh, but maybe it captures a little bit of the meaning. You could say the unalterable thing of his will. Because the promise hasn't changed. God's will has not been altered with respect to the promise that was made way back then. So what is that? What is that unalterable thing of his will? The ESV says unchangeable character. That's okay, but the word character is not there. That's an interpretation that's meant to highlight that the promise given to Abraham expressed and still expresses God's unchanging purpose. And I know we've made this point before in Hebrews, but it's so critical. So I'm going to do it again. <coughs> what would you say, friends, is the unalterable thing of God's will? That he wants to, he wants, he desires, he yearns even, the verb means. 
he yearns to show us more convincingly than even what he did for Abraham that this is it. <laughs> well, for starters, let me suggest to you that this unalterable thing is contained within the promises given to Abraham. So we could ask it this way. What were the promises of land and offspring and universal blessing that we read about last week in Genesis chapter 12 and that show up in a few other places in Genesis? What are those ultimately about? What's the final point of it all? And I do realize that that could be the focus of a whole series of sermons if we were to look at that question across the whole of the scriptures, but we'll just say something that's somewhat condensed to try to say a bit. And I've said some of it before, and I know that, but I think the final point of all of that is what the Bible calls salvation, dear friends. That's what God was promising. Life with God in a place. Only I'm not talking about some kind of ethereal, non-physical place where we finally get to go to be with God after we shed this whole physical existence of ours. No. <laughs> That's a radically unbiblical hope. What I mean by life with God in a place <laughs> is the final new creation restoration of the physical life for which human beings were originally created. As I read it, the promises made to Abraham first in Genesis chapter 12 are through the whole of the scriptures, the vehicle by which the whole plan and purpose of God in salvation will be carried out. They are the promises by which the woman will finally triumph over the serpent with all the implications that will have. Blessing is promised for the whole world through the offspring of Abraham. Think about that. The whole world. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, and I know I've read this one before too, but it's so helpful. Romans 4, verse 13, Paul says, For the promise... The same promise, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Oh, did you hear what Paul says there? The promise is that Abraham and his offspring will be heirs of the world. And I know that that language does not exactly match any one single promise made to Abraham that you can find in Genesis. But what I think is that the reason why is that I think you, you get the plural promises made to Abraham in Genesis and the three main ones we've talked about that are then often referred to as a singular promise in the New Testament because what I think Paul's saying and what the pastor writing Hebrews is saying is that this is the summary. This is what the threefold promise to Abraham was always all about. Do you remember when we were in Hebrews chapter 2? Maybe look there. Hebrews chapter 2, and we were talking about the great salvation that the pastor mentions in verse 3 that we dare not neglect. Right? Do you remember what he said that is? The great salvation? 
it, it was a long time ago, I know, at the pace we're moving through Hebrews. But look, look at the last verse of chapter 1. Are they angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, you hear that? It's getting pretty similar to inheriting the promise, right? And then in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What is that? Well, go to verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2. It's the world to come. Verse 5 of Hebrews 2, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And then we went on to consider how the pastor quotes then from Psalm 8, a psalm that draws on creation language from Genesis 1 and 2. He quotes it in Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 8, and we talk then about the purpose for which human beings were created as that psalm explains it, drawing on that language. What is man that you are mindful of him? Remember this? You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Not that we see that now, yet after the fall. Oh, but we see Jesus. Remember what we were doing in chapter 2? We see Jesus. Jesus is bringing this about, right? Brothers and sisters, the rule over the entire world, destined for human beings, made in the image of God, the whole point of creation, that's what will be realized through Abraham's offspring. That's the unalterable thing of God's will. That's what he's bringing about, you see? It's what life with God in a place means. It's far more real, tangible, objective than you even dare hope for, I think, sometimes. But it is. It's nothing less than the new heaven and the new earth that John sees finally in Revelation chapter 21 when the voice comes from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And it's there, Revelation 22 says, where we see his face. Night will be no more, because the Lord God will be our light. And what is the climax of the thing? What's the thing that finally comes about in this new creation? According to John in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. <laughs> they will. Meaning you and I. And all of God's people from all of time. Why? Because they're the heirs of the world. Abraham and his offspring are to inherit the whole world. We're even going to judge angels, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 6. That's what God's bringing about. That's the unalterable thing of God's will. That's the unchangeable character of his purpose, as the ESV says. And if that's just all, if that's just very clear to you and you're like, why did you take most of the sermon to say all that? Because I had that in my mind already. Great. But I felt like I had to do it just in case. Because I lose sight of that. That's the meaning of the promises given to Abraham. And you and I 
if I'm reading Hebrews rightly, assuming we live by the same faith Abraham had, which is the same faith that all the Old Testament saints had, as Hebrews 11 will make clear, assuming we live by that same faith, now of course, having as its explicit focus the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, the beginning of new creation, assuming that's true, it means what verse 12 of chapter 6 says, we like them will inherit the promises. You know, read Galatians 3 again sometime. If you remember it, verse 29 of Galatians 3, Paul says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. <laughs> Abraham knew what he was living for, dear friends. Do we? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Salvation. Life with God in a place. It's called God's rest in Hebrews 4 that we're urged to enter. It's called Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to which we finally come in Hebrews 12. Christian, it's your future. It is your future. You only live by faith. If you have that future firmly in view, if that's the hope to which you hold fast in your life no matter what, because you're anchored to it, as our passage this morning will make clear, thanks to Jesus. Because look, at how is it that you can know that this is your future? Does that make sense? If we're understanding all this rightly, the promises made to Abraham ultimately are about life with God in a place, life as human beings in the new heaven and the new earth, if that's what this is all about. How can you know that that's going to happen? What is it that can give you the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen? How can you have faith? Let me ask it this way. How can you have that faith when the circumstances and sufferings of your life suggest to you the very opposite of what that promise entails? When what you are going through or have gone through or will go through in the future or what you see happening in the world all around you suggests that God's promises are nothing more than a charade. That they're not real. What is it? According to the pastor writing Hebrews, because you can't always look at your circumstances this way, what is it? according to the pastor, that God himself has done to confirm this unchangeable character of his purpose. That's where we are in verse 17 now, isn't it? So when God desired to show more convincingly to you, the heirs of the promise, the unalterable thing of his will, when God was desirous to demonstrate that, when God yearned to prove it, that's not forcing the language, this is legal terminology, to prove it in a way that go, went beyond even what he did for Abraham, what did he do? Answer, end of verse 17, he guaranteed it with an oath. <laughs> oh, here we go. What oath is the pastor talking about there? Now, I'll just tell you. I think he's talking 
about the oath God makes in Psalm 110, verse 4. But you don't have to turn to it because we've already read part of Psalm 110, verse 4 in Hebrews 5. Do you remember this? Turn back to Hebrews 5. You've got to see it. Right before the pastor brings his sermon to this halt in verse 11 of chapter 5, look back at what he was saying in verses 5 and 6. This is where you'll find it. The pastor had begun to write concerning Christ as high priest in chapter 5, remember? And then in verse 5 of chapter 5, he says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And watch this. As he says, also in another place. That, that other place is Psalm 110 verse 4. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Now don't drift. Don't drift from me. We've got to work a bit hard in this moment to follow what's going on here. You can do it. I know it's getting late in the sermon. The first part there in verse 5 of Hebrews 5, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What's that from? Well, if you remember, it's Psalm 2 verse 7. Psalm 2 verse 7 was also quoted when we started this whole series in Hebrews, back in Hebrews 1 verse 5. Where, as you may recall, the pastor is presenting us this vision of the ascended Son of God now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The today of Psalm 2 verse 7, we said, is ultimately the day when the Lord Jesus Christ, having been resurrected, then ascends to the throne room of heaven. Yes. But there's something else spoken to Jesus in that day. It's the next part of it in Hebrews 5, verse 6. Look at the text. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Only here's the thing you realize. You only realize it if either you've already read Hebrews 7, so you know what's coming, or if you just happen to be like the original hearers of Hebrews, and so you just know this because you just know Old Testament scripture inside and out, Psalm 110 verse 4 is an oath. Now, the pastor only quotes there in Hebrews 5 from the second half of that Psalm 110 verse 4. But now if you look over to Hebrews 7 verse 21, just turn the page, or I don't know if you have to, Look at 7, verse 21, you see there that the pastor quotes from the first half of that verse. Hebrews 7, verse 21, the pastor says, But this one, meaning Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and then here's the first part of Psalm 110, verse 4, quote, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Everything hangs on that. You are a priest forever. Do you hear that? The Lord swore it. Just as the Lord swore the oath in Genesis 22, 
as he also provided tangible confirmation of the promise he had made. So now in Psalm 110, verse 4, does the Lord swear an oath? And according to the pastor in Hebrews 7, verse 21, to whom was God speaking the words of this oath? It was spoken to Jesus, dear friends. To Jesus. You get no more concrete than Jesus. To the Son of God who partook of flesh and blood, because we the children of God share in flesh and blood. To the one who has made like the one who was made like us in every respect, in order to help the offspring of Abraham, as Hebrews 2, verse 16 says. It's spoken to the one who suffered when tempted who had learned obedience through what he suffered, who had offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, as Hebrews 5 says, to him who was able to save him from death, not because Jesus wasn't willing to die, but precisely because he knew he would die, but that his father would raise him to new life. And to the one who, having then been raised by God, then ascends to his father's right hand as a human being, and sits down in the very presence of Almighty God. In other words, you see, the point is that these are the words of an oath spoken to the one who is himself for us, the final, climactic, concrete confirmation of the promise. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what does that oath confirm? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there you are. <laughs> Promise hasn't changed. But now, now it is granted to us as the heirs of the promise to see God's even more convincing proof that his unalterable purpose for us and for the whole world is sure, that he's faithful, that he can be trusted, that his promises are absolutely reliable, and it all centers on this. Jesus Christ, the God-man, has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in accordance with the oath given in Psalm 110, verse 4. Now you're ready for Hebrews 7 can't wait. It will indeed be the burden of the next four chapters of Hebrews to explain the significance of this. But already in what remains of our passage this morning as we close, we get a marvelous preview, don't we? It's just this glorious preview with the promise and now the oath in view the pastor calls those the two unchangeable things in which is impossible for God to lie. With those in view, it's we who have fled for refuge. It's that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Dear friends, that's what we need if we're to do what Hebrews urges us to do, to persevere, to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Because if life with God in a place is an objectively real hope, that is set before you because God sets it before you, what greater encouragement could you possibly have than what you read in verses 19 and 20? We have this, the pastor says. We have this 
as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, meaning you'll get to go there after him. Why? How? Because he's become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we could have, we could have a whole other sermon on just those verses. We won't. What I'll do is close now by reading what one commentator on this text says, just to summarize the whole point. After briefly discussing the significance of this inner place behind the curtain, a reference to the Holy of Holies in the temple, which was the symbolic dwelling place of God on earth, but is not symbolic now. I mean, we're talking about the real thing here. We'll come back to that in Hebrews chapter 9. The commentator writes the following. What the author of Hebrews is going to say more fully in the passages to come is that Jesus has gone in. Not into the earthly temple in Jerusalem, but into the true sanctuary. The world of heaven itself. Right into the innermost courts and into the very presence of the loving Father. And he has gone there on our behalf. We are attached to him. He is there in the very presence of God like an anchor. As long as we don't let go of the cable, we are anchored to the presence of God. All the winds, tides, and storms that may come can't shift us. There is enormous comfort to be had precisely at such times in the knowledge that the anchor is sure and steadfast. For sometimes the storms are overwhelming. We are not promised that there won't be any storms. Indeed, the provision of a secure anchor implies that there will be. What we are promised is that we will be kept safe. Precisely. God means what he says, brothers and sisters. His promise is as solid and unbreakable as it could possibly be. We only need look to the concrete confirmation that has been given. The guarantee of the promise in God's oath that Jesus Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek, has become high priest forever. It's the heartbeat of Hebrews. It's the anchor of our souls. And it will be our entire focus as we enter chapter 7 next week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.